0: Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Cricket with an Accent and this is the last ep- uh, episode for the year 2021, episode number 26, you know, uh, not by plan and we, I mean I thought it, it's going to be two episodes a month at the beginning of the year and without planning and sometimes taking time off, I have landed at this uh, this figure, so uh, call it <laughs> my monthly podcast, it's not, sometimes we produce four or five episodes in a go and sometimes I've taken a month off and i want to thank a couple of people before we get into this episode aftab khanna and vijay arumagam have really given their time this year to be guest resident voices they, i've consulted with them to make this podcast grow and the numbers uh, are steadily increasing and more importantly i think uh, the some interaction that uh, i get on twitter uh, shows that you know the kind of episodes we've produced are really going in the right direction And I also want to thank other regular guests like Ayaz Meman, Gurkira Singil and Sankin Singbal who have appeared every time I've asked them to make this podcast go further. I hope everybody's enjoying the festive time of the year, the holidays, and let's uh, get ready for two big Boxing Day test matches by the time this is released. Uh, But today's guest is a repeat guest, a resident voice. I'm calling him a Twitter friend now, uh, consulted him uh, on many cricket topics. You know, consulted with him. So no secret, it's Vijay Aramagam from Sydney, but this is the first time he's appearing here as a solo guest because he's always been part of a panel with Aftab in the Captaincy podcast, the Stat Merchant versus Nostalgia conversation, and recently with uh, Ayaz Memon and Sharon. So today, uh, this podcast is more like a continuation. Uh, I know the guests better and I'm going to ask some repeat questions and, you know, if you're listening to podcasts, repeat questions sometime unpack more riveting facts and more opinions that, you know, uh, the audience that you know us the cricket suckers you know we kind of get uh, more drilled into so on that note Vijay I know it's very late you you have always a comment to this podcast it's 11 p.m. or slightly even eleven fifteen in Sydney uh, Christmas is winding down how are you my friend
1: hey Saqib uh, thank you very much for inviting me over again and a uh, Merry Christmas to all your listeners and uh, a very happy new year as well I'm doing well, Sakib. Uh, You put me in a bit of a spot uh, by saying that uh, I'm here as a solo guest for the first time. So yeah, it's always fun to be with a a panel of guests, but uh, being on my own, I'm sure it has got its own challenges, but hopefully I'll be able to live up to your expectations. Uh, Once again, thank you very much for having me over here.
0: No, the pleasure is all mine. And believe me, you have a listening base when, uh, you know, you uh, the way you have promoted this podcast and uh, you really get, you know, you take ownership, you get engaged and that's a delight. And a lot of uh, folks that I've uh, interacted, they like your opinion. And sometimes they don't have to agree with your opinion. And that's what this will all uh, will also take a look, but let's start, you know, like I kind of know you are a big cricket fan. <laughs> it's no secret, but you've also lived the life of a fan. You live in Sydney, Australia. You've attended the new year's test uh, going back to the South African visit in 2009. And this year you will be attending the Ashes Test, uh, you know, in a week's time. Uh, so yeah, we'll try to unpack all this. So floor is yours. Let's start. You know, what do you remember of the first Test? How did that happen? And uh, how did this become a tradition for you to keep going to the same venue? Of course, Sydney's home, so it's a local Test match. But uh, let's just uh, fill us in. The first Test match. You know, what happened there? And uh, was it like automatic that you're going to do this every year, or it just you know became a thing over time?
1: So, Sakib, I came to Australia in 2008, uh, June, uh, in the winter, which was not a cricket season. There's a bit of a story, right? Uh, So, uh, I was in London uh, doing a small consulting engagement for my uh, organization uh, while I was appearing for an interview or appeared for an interview uh, for an Australian role. Uh, The person who interviewed was a big cricket tragic. He was my boss. Uh, So, basically, uh, the interview was for 60 minutes to understand my technical skills, whatever I had in my, you know, day job. But the interview was all about a test match cricket and whether I followed test match cricket, et cetera, et cetera. So at the end of it, he asked me uh, whether I knew what I was supposed to know in my work. And I said, yes. So he selected me. So, so I met him at work. Uh, we became good friends um, even outside of work. Uh, he, he was, you know, born in Sydney, he's an Australian. Um, and he's been attending the test matches uh, probably, Uh, 15 years prior to that with a couple of his friends so he was a regular to the the SCG Uh, then he left the organization and went somewhere else I followed him then I went to another place he followed me so we kind of followed each other at work at the same time you know we have been friends off the field as well and he has kind of uh, you know graciously accepted me as part of his you know cricketing friend a cricket friend circle which means you know he goes every year to the SCG test And I'm included as part of the group. And then he sometimes goes uh, for interstate interstate tests to Adelaide and Brisbane and other places. So I travel with him as well, like as part of the friends group. So it's a bit of this interesting thing that, yeah, I always wanted to go and attend the SCG test once I knew that I was coming to Sydney. But the fact that, uh, you know, I was able to uh, become friends with uh, people who had the tradition of having done it, having born and lived over here in Australia, kind of added to the, you know, luster to, so to speak, because, you know, you know, I was never an outsider, even when I went to the first test match in, you know, against South Africa in 2008, nine, uh, we, we were at the Bradman stand. Back then Bradman stand was open for the commoners. Now it has been part of the members side, uh, which is, uh which is the other side. Um, and, uh, you know, you know, I, I was able to, I was able to understand, you know, how the Australians have got this tradition of going to test matches, how they book tickets, how they interact. So I, I had an insider view, though I was technically an outsider being in the country for six months. So that kind of helped me to uh, integrate very well with the Australian cricket culture or the psyche. Now, going back to, going back to the test match 2008-9, uh, that's the last time South Africa had played in Sydney because uh, after that, South Africa had stopped uh, coming to Australia during the boxing day and new Year Test matches, because their argument was we have our own summer, Australia never reciprocates uh, and travels over to uh, Kingsmead or Centurion or uh, you know Wanderers for or Cape Town right Newlands for the test matches um, so that kind of started to happen, and therefore uh, that was the last time South Africa had played uh, at the SCG so I was fortunate enough to have seen a Dale stain bowl and he bowled a, a ripping spell. And ironically, that Australian side was in transition uh, the year before uh, they had a successful tour against, albeit a controversial one, against India in 2007-08. But by this time, Ponting was not in a, you know, in a great, uh, you know, uh, he wasn't the player he was in uh, 2004 to 2006. um, And Andrew McDonald uh, made his debut um, as a number six. And I still say that probably, arguably, the worst number six to have played uh, for Australia, so you know it, it was a good day because I got to see the the South African quicks, especially uh, Stain bowling a really good spell and Hayden. I still remember uh, Hayden was really struggling and uh, finally got dismissed by uh, Stain and Intini bowled really well as well, and uh, it was Carles, et cetera, etc. etc. So it, it was a, a top South African side um, uh, playing in that particular series. Uh, again, it was historic because South Africans. Uh, you know, had already won that historic test match. Uh, um, you know, at the uh, at the MCG when uh, stain had that uh, you know a big partnership. He was involved with Jumini as well. Uh, so it, it was a very very good South African side against an Australian transition, and also you know getting to watch uh, some of the great South African players and the Australian players uh, was a was a great experience. So that's what I remember. I mean, we, I think we went to only day one. Uh, so I think we didn't go for more than one day. So we just for day one, uh, we watched that. It was a good day of Australian batting and South African bowling. That's what I remember, Sake.
0: No, that's a fitting answer. And it just opened up many avenues and I'm re- ready to go. So uh, please pardon me. I'll kind of struggle because, you know, many ideas are flashing through mine. So let me compare your experience to mine, because when I came to US in the mid 90s, you know, I was a huge tennis fan, like, you know, you know, and most of my friends know, and some of my listeners know, because I also host a tennis podcast. Tennis is my first uh, favorite sibling, and cricket is my favorite cousin, if I can put it. You know, they're very close, but, you know, tennis always has the edge. So when I come to Boston, and, uh, you know, French Open was going to start in a, in a week's time. I didn't know anyone. And then a few months down the road, I started college. And when I go to college, I thought people would be buzzing with the U.S. Open. Of course, it's a small town in Massachusetts. Nobody knew U.S. Open had just ended, <laughs> So using that, you know, it took me a while because I thought America is the center of tennis. Financially, it always has been, but it is popular in parts. Like you go to New York, you go to California, Florida, the tennis capital of the world. But outside that, you know, you will see people playing tennis, but my experience was people didn't know who Boris Becker was. People didn't know if Agassi had won. And I realized pretty quickly, this is not what I saw in India on TV. But I'm sure Australia is a little different in cricket. So was there a culture shock when you ever came here? Or was there maybe not a shock, maybe an improvement of sense of how important cricket is? Well, because you always have been open that you learned your cricket on TV in India and also in Australia through the likes of Chappelle. So, what you knew of Australian cricket and Australian culture uh, was the picture accurate, or did you learn a lot about where cricket actually belongs in Australian culture? And it's a broad question, but you can unpack it with your experience as a fan. Experience is what we're trying to capture here, Vijay. So. Uh, please uh, take the take the floor. It's uh, you know fire away.
1: Yeah, so it's a, it's a very good question, right? As I said, I came to Australia in two thousand eight June. Um, I mean, a lot of people don't realize because having lived in India, you think that Australia, for some reason, you know, sunny beaches and you know great weather. And you know, we've looked at Australia through uh, growing up in India through the prism of Prism of Channel Nine and the the sunny weather and the cricket grounds, right? So because Australia is not in political news as much as say the United States or United Kingdom or even Russia or Soviet Union, right? So Australia is not a political heavyweight. So sports is a major uh, soft power for them um, when you, especially when you live overseas and cricket and especially the era in which you and I grew up, the Mark Taylors and Steve Wars and Shane Warnes and Glenn McGrath. So it's like the Australian dominance uh, was seen as the epitome of their sporting success or, culture. So, but when I came here in 2008, June, um, right, it was winter. So I didn't realize the winter was, you know, but such a huge thing, especially Sydney is not that cold I mean, Melbourne can get a lot more colder and the winter sports were you know, full on, right. I mean, to understand Australian landscape, uh, New South Wales, where Sydney's and Queensland, where Brisbane is uh, the national rugby league or the rugby league is such a major sport. Uh, but you go to the Southern states like Victoria, where Melbourne is or Adelaide, which is in South Australia, or WA, which is Perth, uh, the Aussie rules or Australian uh, AFL uh, is more popular. So these are the two big codes, sporting codes, that dominate nine months or eight and a half to nine months of the 12 month sporting cycle, new cycle. So cricket has its space. Uh, so pretty much you have from November uh, till February. Uh, sometimes some cricket gets played in October. But the majority cricket months are the summer months, right? The late November to December and January, and then sometimes into early February. So cricket has a space and it's a shorter space. Uh, When Australia plays overseas, when they play Ashes in England, that gets a lot of coverage on the free-to-air TV, which is either you get it on Channel 9 or Channel uh, 10 or 7, depends on who has the rights, you get it, or SBS sometimes. Uh, so when, when Australia goes in place in England, you would still get a little, little bit of coverage. But otherwise, during winter months, when Australia goes to India or Pakistan or UAE, uh, I wouldn't say the interest is that great. You know, people, you know, the sport tragic or the cricket tragics will watch it. It's on uh, Fox Cricket or Fox Sports, which is the pay TV. Uh, 30 to 35% of the people have it. It's not 100%. Uh, I mean, the tragics will watch it. But cricket gets into its own limelight during the summer months, right? Summer months, Uh, The back pages are full of cricket. Um, And then, um, you know, there's a lot of chatter on radio. Radio plays a huge role, right? Uh, I mean, I've never lived in England. I've been to England a few times, but I never lived in England. So till I came to Australia, I didn't understand the power of cricket and the way uh, sports are propagated through the medium of, uh, you know, radio. It's not just the live, uh, you know, cricket commentary, which they get it but they have this ABC grandstand and how it promotes on Saturdays and Sundays, not just cricket in every sport. Uh, the minute details are assessed, uh, you know, dissected, et cetera, et cetera. Then of course, there's a, you know, a lot of press coverage, a uh, lot of chat shows, et cetera, et cetera. So cricket, cricket is part of the Australian national conscious, um, conscience, I would say, uh, but it's for that, you know, three to four months. Uh, but the other interesting thing about, uh, cricket, right. Uh, Look, unfortunately, I came to Australia in 2008. Uh, It wasn't during the peak Australian uh, winning era. Like, it's not the late 90s or early noughties, right? When Australia even tried to have some cricket games during winter, like, you know, there were a couple of, you know, indoor cricket series were played against uh, uh, South Africa in 2000. uh, And then Pakistan came the following year. So they tried to even, uh, you know, eat into the footy season, um, what shall I say, calendar to see whether they could have cricket during winter months, right? Or they try to play some games up in North in Darwin and Cairns and stuff. So by the time I came to Australia, like Australia wasn't a dominant power, uh, or they were still a good side, but they weren't the number one. They weren't the world beating side. I mean, unfortunately, Warner retired, McGrath retired, uh, you know, so there weren't that, that many household names. Of course, Ponting was on the way et cetera, et cetera. To answer your question, cricket, some would argue, rightly so it's probably the national game of australia as i said the afl and nrl has definitely more tribal following they got slightly bigger tv rights but of course they got they play for more number of months and therefore they more games but the fans are tribal right because uh, you know those afl fans they have their jerseys they get the season tickets they go uh, they want their team to win it's full on you know uh, tribal uh, cricket doesn't get the same level of uh, what do we say tribal following or, you know, jingoism the footy teams get. Uh, But, you know, cricket has always been a different game. Even you go to an Ashes test when an England player plays a good cover drive, you're supposed to clap, right? That's that's cricket for, uh, you know, its own idiosyncrasy, right? Uh, At the same time, um, I'd like to give two examples. I was here for two seminal moments. One is very tragic. One is, you know, very pathetic. But two seminal moments of... uh, cricket incidents that kind of told told me and others how important cricket is to the Australian national psyche. One was uh, Phil Hughes' death in 2014. Um, the coverage was unbelievable, right? You know, he passed away tragic uh, playing a shield game at the SCG. The wall-to-wall coverage uh, on radio, TV, they wrote 30-odd pages, you know, you know, 15 pages just on this particular incident, day in day out, you know, uh, broadsheets, uh, tabloids, uh, you know, it, it was on, on the lips of everyone. So I, I heard quite a few people talking about had this happened to an AFL player or an NRL player, the impact wouldn't have been the same, though though other two sports would argue they are a bigger sport. So the Phil Hughes incident was such a big thing, kind of told the world, you know, what cricket meant to Australia and a, a tragic death of a young uh, player. Uh, and then the sandpaper, sandpaper gate, right? What happened in Newlands, everyone knows, right? Again, right, uh, from the Prime Minister to the, um, you know, opposition members, opposition leaders, to state premiers, to other sporting code people. I mean, everyone wanted cricket to fix it because everyone said hey, it's always a cliche that Australian cricket captaincy is the second most important job in the country after the Prime Minister's job. It, it, it sounds like a cliche. Sometimes you'd say mm-hmm. you can't even make that comparison, but that kind of told us that every person from every walk of life, um, you know, wanted that to be fixed. So Cricket Australia was in huge amount of pressure. And again, the coverage was like, it was, it happened in the peak footy season. I mean, you have to be in Melbourne to understand how big AFL is, right? There's no way AFL is going to be off the sports pages when AFL games are on. But at that time, cricket was on the front page every day. And AFL was not even on the back page of the, you know, newspaper. So it was, Cricket dominated the front and back pages. I mean, that's why I always say cricket needs a controversy to mm. eclipse other sports. But again, it kind of showed us why cricket means so much. So it's, it's an intriguing thing, right? So, but the one worry I have about cricket in this country is demographics. And I'll give an example. Uh, when South Africa were here uh, for the WACA test, was it 17, 18 or 16, 17? 16, 17. So my mother uh, was in a hospital undergoing a surgery. So a couple of days I pretty much spent, uh, you know, I I used to take my laptop and I used to be there, you know, on the corridors, you know, waiting for instructions. Sometimes they'll ask, uh, you know, so a couple of days I was in the hospital. So every TV right on the hallway for the patients, they had, you know, cricket on channel nine. So, and it was in the evening. So the WACA test was happening. I I just observed it. Right. So every, you know, you go to a hospital, every hospital screen has got cricket on live test match, but who are the people are looking at it? it's mostly people above 45, 50, mostly white men, you know, old male, old pale, stale men. And I was of course watching as well, but there's a lot of younger people, right. From different demographics, they were just looking at their phones. So that's a, a good microcosm of where the Australian society is, because in a way um, cricket is still followed by people of certain generation who grew up with the Dennis Lily, uh, Ian Chapel. Uh, so that's my worry, right? So, they still play a lot of cricket. Like even today, I went to the beach uh, uh, on the Christmas day. They were, you know, the tradition of Australia is they have barbecues and they play cricket on the beach. So it still continues. A lot of kids are playing back at cricket, but I don't think it's the same as it was like 10, 15, 20 years ago. Hmm. But the good thing is the Big Bash tried to change it. So I thought the Big Bash was a really good thing to happen because that brought in a lot of young kids and newer demographics to the game. Uh, especially, I mean, they had about 80,000 people in fifteen, sixteen at the MCG Derby. But again, Big Bash is kind of going through, what do I say, a little bit of a midlife crisis of a 7 8 age or whatever you want to call it, right? So in a nutshell, cricket is still very important. I would say more than England, Australia. In Australia, cricket matters a lot. It's, it gets a lot more coverage. Uh, the home test matches are on free-to-air TV, which means everyone can watch it. Even Ashes from overseas is on free-to-air TV, so, which means a lot. At the same time, there's a lot of press coverage, radio and TV. They play a big role. Uh, but sometimes it struggles a little bit against the football codes. Uh, even during summer months, they try to you know, somehow uh, sneak in. But overall, I would say it's still one of the top three sports. Uh, maybe I thought when I came here in 2008 that I thought cricket would be a little more popular than what I thought. But you need to understand only when you go to the SCG, when you go to the museums, when you visit certain places, you understand it's, 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 it's part of the Australian, you know, psyche culture, uh, but it may not be an uh, explicitly woven on the, you know, so to speak, you know, I mean, what, what I was after, like, it's like, you know, it's not worn on the sleeves as much as a footy coat, but it's still very important. When a crisis happens, you kind of realize how much cricket means to the Australian psyche.
0: Okay. All right. So there's plenty again, plenty of food uh, for me to take this further as uh, so well. Try to avoid the obvious one, you know, if there's a decline, because I've covered that before, but I want to focus with you. Because you have a rare opportunity. You work, you know, in corporate leadership. So you've always been in an office where a lot of Australian locals and, of course, a lot of Indians and Pakistanis and other, uh, other nationalities. So in America, right, I never had this uh, opportunity because U.S. doesn't play cricket. So whenever you go after a big test match, you have like, you know, depending on your, the work group you're in, if you have a lot of uh, Desis, Indians or, you know, some Pakistanis, you're talking about the cricket, you're whispering about it, you're you know, in your circles. But uh, let's not make mistake. The day after Super Bowl, that's like what the most uh, office conversations are in Boston, because Patriots have been good and football has ascended to the number one sport and then baseball then hockey and then the NBA and forget about tennis and, you know, cricket only in Indian circles. So my question, again, is largely coming from that vantage point. So how has your you know, experience been, especially when India is playing a test match? I know, say, at that time New Year, offices are closed. But uh, even, say, for the Adelaide test match, if it's in November, or the Brisbane test match when you're still at work, uh, how does the Australian cricket die hard or, you know, office fan? What kind of banter is there? Do they expect you to root for Australia, one, because you're living there? Or uh, overall, how's the office culture in terms of cricket, you know, if you want to share something here?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, well, usually there's a fair bit of buzz around cricket. And you rightly said, uh, Australia is quite unique, I think, for your viewers to understand. I know Christmas is very big in, uh, in the US and UK and other Western European nations, but Australia is unique because... For everyone else Christmas happens during winter it's they talk about white Christmas and stuff I know people take time off but mostly it's voluntary they won't take some time off to be with their families and stuff. Australia is the other way around because it's a peak summer right and it's also the school holidays the big two month school holidays happen between uh, say early December till end of Jan. sometimes even into <coughs> February, <coughs> excuse me, which means. And also the other uh, aspect about Australia is a little bit like the Scandinavian culture we have, like uh, you know, Sweden or, <coughs> excuse me, Denmark or Finland, where people are pretty much most of the office spaces are shut between, let's say, the third week of December, a week before Christmas, a few days before Christmas, and most of the offices reopen uh, in the second week of January. So it's almost like everyone is forced to take leave. And that's become more and more prominent in the last 10 days. It's not just offices, even um, you know, my neighborhood has got two or three very good coffee shops and breakfast places. All of them closed on the 23rd and they're reopening on the, you know, 7th or 8th of January or 10th of January. So even retail business, you know, restaurant business is this kind of close. So that's one uh, factor that everyone has to understand because in the UK and US, and I've lived in the US for a while to understand, both on the East and West Coast, it doesn't happen like that. So that's one. So as you rightly said, most of the offices aren't working. in that period during the boxing day test match or during new year test match, et cetera, et cetera. But as you rightly said, cricket happens in late November, early November into December. And most of the offices, a lot of offices have a little bit of a TV screen or put a, you know, uh, kind of a a temporary screen. So that happens. I mean, most of the offices will have, uh, you know, TV room as well. Right. So in in the cafeteria uh, or in the room, there's always a talk, you know, people talk about, uh, you know, cricket scores and stuff whether India plays uh, or not, or when the during the ashes, the interest is a little more. So definitely the cricket conversation happens. Um, depends on where office. is. I mean, I, I worked in another place probably eight years ago, which is full of British expats, um, you know, and then who have migrated to Australia kind of stuff. So depending on where you work, you always have a cricket chatter in most places during the cricket season. That's a given. Now, coming back to your question about um, who do you support for? I don't think anyone cares. Uh, I don't, Australia, uh, to be honest with you, they don't really care about who you support. Um, I mean, it's not like what Nazar Hussain said uh, when he became the captain in England, uh, you know, right, the Norman Tebbit, uh, uh, famous or infamous, whichever way you look at it, (coughs) uh, the parliamentarian in Britain who said uh, people of South Asian origin, India or Pakistan, uh, when when you live here, pay the taxes, you should support uh, England against those countries. And Nasser Hussein tried to uh, repeat the message when he became a captain. You know, everyone knows Nasser Hussein was born in Chennai, India, uh, before he became the the captain of uh, England. I don't think anyone, at least in my knowledge, uh, anyone has said anything. Um, No one talks about it. As I said, I've been to a couple of... uh, games, I think uh, last, uh, even this year or the year, the, the summer before when India came, some of the one-day games that are 37,000 people at the SCG, um, pretty much 95% crowds are Indian. And you listen to the accents. Some of them speak an Australian accent, which means they've been born and bred over here, which means uh, probably they're second generation uh, Indians over here or Australians of Indian origin, uh, so to speak. Uh, there is no tepid test in Australia. There's no discrimination or there's no known questions uh, your allegiance to a country of Australia based on what sporting team you support um, so I'd like to bring one interesting point <clears throat> I always I mean you know every country can have one or two three national traits so to speak one of the important things in Australian culture is uh barracking for the, the underdogs uh for the underdogs is uh, it's an interesting Australian phrase where they just want to support the underdog and make sure he or she or that particular team wins. So that's, that's, that's part of the Australian DNA. So maybe that's one of the reasons why they don't really care who you support for, even in footy teams and uh, and other places, they happen to support the team, which is weaker. Uh, it happens in other sports as well. So no, I've never experienced nor do I think that's been raised by anyone why you're supporting India, why you supporting for Pakistan, why you supporting for England. And if someone asks, you can say something in a very colorful language uh, with a few F words added, C words added in Australia. In Australia, they use C more than F. Um, I'll let your viewers uh, uh, decipher what it is. Um, so, again, uh, that's that's a non-issue, Saki. It's a very egalitarian and a pretty open-minded
0: country, I would say. Okay, fair, uh, fair, fair enough. Just wanted to you know get your viewers I'm exchanging notes what it is to live like you know uh, in Australia and uh, the other part you said about interesting is which was one of my questions and <clears throat> for you setting the stage that the crowds are mostly Indian so not your office crowd but what is overall Australian public uh, viewpoint on this like how India has such a strong presence India doesn't really have a road game anywhere in the world you know if uh, because Indians live abroad you know for either they have settled in or they are doing they are on visas there and cricket, you know, you know how closely it is to our imagination. And that's like your national, you know, you can say pastime. But uh, my point is, if Indians are at so many grounds and so strong numbers, has there been like a media resentment or overall people encouraging Australians to show up? Say, I know be, you and I have talked about the 2015 semifinal in the World Cup and uh, even Australian players were urging to you know, come more in yellow. So what is that? I mean, is that, uh, have have you sense that? Is there like a bother? Like, because uh, even in England, it's the same case. Indian fans are in numbers outside of the test matches because test tickets probably are stipulation to membership. But all the ICC events or one-day matches, you see, especially in Australia, you know, there are a lot of Indian jerseys. So talk about that experience. I don't know if this is a well-rounded question. I hope, uh, you know, there's enough clarity in what I'm trying to ask.
1: It's a fair question, uh, Sakib. Um, so I think when I came in 2008, uh, the Indian diaspora wasn't that big. It was there. Um, I mean, I believe now the latest census, there could be up to 750,000 Indians of Australia. I mean, Australians of Indian origin or people who've been born um, um, in India. Uh, I think probably three uh, percent of the Australian population, or two point I don't know, nine percent of the Australian population is of Indian origin. So. It's a sizable number because Australian population is around 24 million, right? And interestingly, 40% of Australian population lives in two cities, Sydney and Melbourne. So it's one of the very interesting, um, you know, what shall I say, uh, urbanized centers. Two, two centers holding 40% of a population of a very large country uh, where in most places people don't live. That's beside the point. Now, coming back to your question, uh, so since I was here in 2008, the uh, Indian You know, expats have grown, especially uh, you know, in the tech industry, uh, STEM as we call it, like you know, um, uh, science, technology. uh, So sorry, STEM is uh, science, right? Science, yeah. Uh, Science, technology must be English and mathematics. So whatever the exact jargon. Um, um, So basic, and there are a lot of students, right? I mean, I mean, the biggest thing for Australia, the third largest uh, uh, export sector is uh, students, right? So the more and more Indian students have started to come to Australia. I mean, US is still dominating the, the Indian student mindset, but more, and more. I think it's a little more uh, affordable, and the quality of the education is quite good, and it's a good country to live. So more students are coming in. More uh, tech and uh, you know high tech uh, uh, employees come come in as expats. That means the the Indian diaspora has kind of uh, expanded uh, substantially in the last decade or so. Um, and also, as always, right, they are, you know, as in the US, the Indian expats over here are earning more, right? Um, more than an average Australian per capita income, they're earning comfortably more because they are in the white collar jobs. But even when the students come here, they go for the Masters and then they go for those high end jobs. So that's, that's one part of the equation. Therefore, they could afford to go to cricket games. But in, more importantly, as in England, test matches still, even when you go to an Australia-India test match, it's still dominated by Australian fans. Um, I think it's changing a little bit. More and more Indian fans are going to test matches, at least in MCG, at the MCG and SCG, but still um, they can't outnumber the Australians. I mean, still the Australian fans would be 80 20 or even sometimes 70 30, but still 80 20 for an India Australia test match. Um, I mean, even when Virat Kohli is batting 100, you would still get 70% Australian fans. The one day games are completely different. I think to your earlier question, I didn't probably answer it properly. It's the Australian cricket, what has changed, right? The Carrie Packer uh, revolution and World Series cricket, the one-day cricket was such a big novelty, coloured clothing, lights, and it became popular late 70s, early 80s, and 90s, and even early 2000s. I think that wave of popularity with the, uh, the one-day cricket, uh, the triangular tournament, which ended in 2008. Yeah, India played the last one, right? Oh, no, sorry, England played. Um, England won. I mean, no, India played. India played the last one, uh, 2007 8 And after this one tri-series, uh, when India toured here in 2011 and 12 when Sri Lanka was the third team. Anyway, that's a different point. So ever since they abolished the tri-series, the popularity of the, the Australian one-day cricket has kind of waned, at least in terms of the crowd support at the ground. They still get great TV ratings. Um, so in th- I think that is where the Indian expats and fans have really filled in they fill up the stadiums. And also, I'd even like to go back to the 2015 50 uh, Overs Men's World Cup cricket, right? I was here. I went to a couple of games, including South Africa, West Indies, when uh, De Villiers scored at 162. And then I was there for the India uh, Australia semi final as well. Um, that tournament was pretty much, uh, I would say, lifted by the Indian expats over here, as well as the tourists from. Uh, Indian tourists from Singapore, India, US, UK—they came from all over the world, uh, you know, to experience cricket in Australia. So for ICC tournaments and uh, uh, you know one-day bilateral one dayers and uh, T20s, the Indian expats and Indian fans are really, really important because without them, they just can't fill up stadiums. And also, most importantly, because of the uh, airfield size, most of the Australian grounds are much bigger capacities, say, than England, right? If you go to like a city like Adelaide, which is not a very big city, they've got a 53,000 capacity stadium. None of those English cricket grounds have that capacity. Of course, they have the Wembley. They have the, the biggest stadiums for football and rugby, right? Um, so from that perspective, when India came here in ninety nine 2000 Adelaide Oval's capacity was probably 18,000. So literally in 20 years, the capacity has gone from 18,000 to 53,000. And they could fill that up for AFL football games. They fill that up for cricket for a one-day game. Uh, against India or Sri Lanka, I mean, in, without Indian expats, I can't do it. So that's one thing that has changed uh, from that perspective. Um, coming back to coming back to resentment of more and more people coming, I think Australia has always accepted um, what shall I say uh, expats from all over the world. It, it was during the World War, post World War, uh, how the Europeans, Western European Eastern Europeans came, and then. A lot of people came from uh, East Asia, Southeast Asia, I should say. Um, look, there have been incidents, instances, especially around 2009, a uh, few uh, you know, unfortunate incidents happened, especially in Melbourne, when the Indian students were attacked and uh, uh, Australia was in the press for a lot of wrong reasons at that time. So there have been incidents in the past, but overall, uh, there is not a big resentment towards more and more expats coming in. Of course, when... People lose jobs, and uh, when job market isn't great, of course, few frustrated individuals will have their say. But otherwise, it's a very accommodating country when it comes to people coming from overseas and then supporting uh, their cricket teams as well. I don't know if um, I've answered the question. Sir. No, I think
0: no. It's it's a very uh, fair way, objective way of uh, you know addressing the question, and uh, I'm sure everyone, including myself. Uh, you know, you take a lot of food for thought and learn what you just said. So you said, you know, the acceptance is a big word, you know, in Australian culture. And that's, you know, you, you've lived through it and you understand that. So let me use that word to uh, better understand the next question. And it's a broader question, right? The Sandpaper Gate and, you know, the episode involving Steve Smith and Dave Warner and everyone involved in South Africa was very unfortunate. You already mentioned controversy kind of reigned supreme and it occupied, you know, major space in all the newspapers and pushed every other sport in the back page. So with that, also a lot of ex-Australian cricketers, you know, Chappell and a lot of other guys, uh, you probably will name more, came out and also tag-teamed Australia's attitude, you know, the rough attitude or the, you know, the sledging, which has been so commonly associated with them. Uh, And it also kind of, you know, got uh, addressed. Uh, One was, of course, you know, they are trying to gamesmanship and cheating. And then they also said, you know, this is the culture. It has gone too far. So you know, in terms, you know, combine that from the acceptance lens. So was Australian public more insulted or they felt, okay, this is stooping too down that the, you know, Smith and these guys had to cheat. And then at the same time, they combined the second issue is, you know, this is a byproduct of, you know, because they are sledging, which, uh, you know, it could be a far stretch, but I don't understand the culture. I've always understood. I mean, my far vantage point, if America was playing cricket, they would be very close to Australia in terms of, you know, in terms of swagger in terms of sledging how they approach because they're like different worlds they both are like in a different parts of the world and they have their own sports their own culture so i always thought the way australians sledge indians and pakistanis and even english it was just part of their culture And the end they will have a beer i'm not saying you know some of the brad head sledging to virat Kohli i enjoyed no some of sometime you feel it's going over the top but uh, i was surprised that uh, the hammer came down quickly with the cheating scandal on also the sledging that it needs to be toned down. So what is one, your opinion? And secondly, more importantly, I'm interested, what is the opinion of your Australian friends? Did they to this? Did, did they see the two as similar and where did the, you know, the similarities end? Uh, I, I hope I've clearly, clearly it's a long question. I hope I've clearly communicated what I'm trying to ask.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a complex question. I, I, I'll do my best to answer this because it's more than cricket. It's societal. It's more cultural. Um, it's more trying to understand the anthropological angle, right? So it's a bit complex. I'm not an expert on any of that, so that's the first caveat. But uh, I'll try to explain um, in whatever I've understood. Uh, look, I think a couple of things I want uh, everyone to understand because Australia, uh, you know, the the one that we see on TV, right? At least the one we saw. Growing up in India, Mark Taylor chewing his gum and saying a few things, and Ian Healy, and then Steve War, oh, uh, the sledging or mental disintegration, and all those things. So you 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 get an impression that everyone in Australia is very aggressive, straight shooting. Uh, they're going to be rude. So you get that kind of a perception. Of growing up in India in the nineties, watching on TV, but you land here in Australia, you, you find the Australians to be a very different set of people. Right, the ones you see at work, the ones you see on the street. Uh, um, so. Uh, it's very interesting. Like, I mean, I would even go to an extent and say that Australians lack a little bit of confidence at work, especially if you have got global experience having worked in US, UK, Canada and other places and Australia, right? It's still, um, uh, you know, it's under the the monarchy. Uh, So they have their own, you know, republic uh, movements and stuff. So if you look at Australia, right? Uh, For all their confidence bravado, they can be a little bit of an insecure nation. Uh, you know, if you scratch the surface. But straight shooting is an absolute, uh, you know, I mean, it's part of the Australian DNA. uh, And, you know, people can tell them off and uh, it can be a pretty direct conversation. In Australia, a lot of direct conversations happen, but people don't take offense, right? Uh, So it's that kind of a culture. At the same time, there's something very interesting, uh, something called a tall poppy syndrome, right? It's an interesting phrase. I mean, I, I think it originated because they were trying to chop the, the poppy flowers not to to make sure they don't grow taller than the others what it means so if you are going to a, a university or a, a school and say i'm the best topper i'm the i'm the first in the class they'll just try to you know shut it down so somehow like you know you can't be a genius or you can't be having a little bit of an attitude saying that you're the best in the business so that's reflected at work schools unis so you're always told to be grounded humble and if you are seen as you know that kind of a snooty character People will make sure they gang up and put you down. So that's seen as an Australian trait, and a lot of people even there's a completely different argument to saying, is that the reason why Australia is not producing a Google or a you know Microsoft? You know, is Australia lacking innovation as the Silicon Valley? So it's a completely different topic. Yeah, that's a topic that's that's been discussed a lot. Again, as I said, Australians have a very good self deprecating humor. It's a bit like the British, a bit like the Irish or the Scottish, right? So they can learn, they they can laugh at themselves, they can make a joke, and they can call themselves names. And uh, um, so they're a lot more loose in that perspective. When I say loose, it's, you know, they don't get, you know, uh, too stiff and, you know, too worried about these things. So that's a broader context. So coming back to your question about cricket and sledging and, uh, whether that has played a part in the sandpaper, culture. Culture is a very broad term. How do you define culture? There's no easy way to measure culture, right? I would say, um, and I don't want to go back and say when, uh, culture, when when the sledging started, we don't want to go back to 7374 Christchurch, Lancaster, uh, sorry, 7374 when uh, straight toward uh, New Zealand that, you know, unfortunate Glen Turner, Yen Chapel incident. Let's not go there and try to find the, orig- the origins of culture. Sorry, uh, mental disintegration. I'd rather look at the 2003 um, uh, Test match um, in Antigua uh, when the you know infamous uh, Glenn McGrath Ramnesh Sarwan incident happened when McGrath went back after uh, you know being away for a couple of tests to be with his wife uh, who the then wife uh, unfortunately passed away later on. Right? I think a lot of people got fed up uh, at that time. I was not here in this country, but having read, having spoken to people, I think uh, a lot of people felt that was a moment that they felt it was pretty bad in terms of what McGrath did. And uh, I think there was a little bit of talk to pipe down this, you know, sledging and stuff. But again, everyone has to understand one more context. Australian great, great cricket, great cricket, which is played in Sydney and other places, which is a few levels below uh, the Sheffield Shield. That's very competitive where uh, people sledge, as you rightly said, people say a few swear words and abuse. I'm not too sure that's personal abuse, but there'll be a, a fair bit of, you know, uh, banter, wisecracks at the same time. You know, if your technique is weak, they'll tell you in so many words. If you're a little bit scared of bounces, don't bother because they'll clearly tell you how scared you are, how you run away to the square leg, like, et cetera, et cetera. And as you rightly said, at the end of it, they have a drink or beer, which means, you know, and that's where this whole what happens on field stays on field. No one goes and dobbs someone into a uh, to match referee or something like that. Um, so that's the broader aspect. But when it comes to test match cricket, In the previous tours, uh, you know, teams used to mingle. At the end of the game, even the famous uh, 1998 Trent Bridge when Atherton and uh, Donald, right? Everyone, what we saw on TV was different, but um, um, Atherton went to the uh, South African dressing room with the drinks. And, uh, you know, after the game, they were able to exchange, you know, share a few drinks and, you know, have a laugh. So that's how cricket was played. But I think that culture of, going to each other's dressing rooms and, you know, sharing a drink and sharing a time has kind of become a little too hard in this professional world. And of course, COVID has changed everything. Probably that's one reason why teams aren't mingling that well. At the same time, um, coming back to, so this culture and Australian teams attitude and how it puts off people has always been there in the last, you know, 15, 16 years, ever since the 2003 uh, McGrath incident. But again, when teams win, when they do well, people forget and move on. But when this sandpaper gate happened, uh, it kind of became uh, you know, a, a tipping point, so to speak. And Lehman, Darren Lehman, who was a coach, I think Greg Chappell had this conversation with Greg Chappell said, Darren, you, and especially you know, even before that, uh, when Stuart Broad came after the 2013 edge uh, to 13-14 Ashes, and Lehman openly said Australian crowd should make him cry, right? and And uh, the courier mail in, in Brisbane. Uh, they literally refused to uh, write his name down and the crowds were asked to boo him and stuff. So this whole, uh, you know, uh, cacophony of the noises where people, uh, you know, teams, I mean, coaches egging on the crowds to, uh, you know, swear at people or players or boo, I think became a little bit unacceptable because people, again, people were quiet. In 13 and 14, nobody, not many people opposed to Lehman. But when this incident manifested at the Newlands, they, everything started to crystallize and form a place. And others started to say, hang on, it's a culture. It's you, poof, poof is the nickname for Darren Lehman. Um, and how the whole culture of you know allowing people to be in a bubble without them realizing what's happening outside. And uh, so it's almost a case of when Lehman asked the crowds to boo broad, there weren't too many dissenting voices. I was in this country. I don't think there were too many people because uh, you know one has to beat the Ash, you know, the English in an Ashes contest. But when this newlets happened, I think that was almost like the last straw that uh, the broke the uh, camel's back. So everything was kind of tied back. So Sarwan, um, McGrath incident came up, and this came up, and former players added to that, and, and then the whole, you know, you know how how do you fix the culture? Uh, so. Again, the biggest problem after the sandpaper, a lot of people outside of Australia don't realize, I mean, a lot of people on Twitter, even some journalists ask, why do Australians fuss so much? It's a one match suspension. But you wouldn't believe, I've lived through that sandpaper gate when people openly said, right, they were going to stop their girls or boys from going and playing cricket. And I still, I mean, sandpaper happened, what, how many years ago? Three, three, four summers ago? We used to, we used to have seven or eight people going to the SCG test every year, every summer, at least day one we have hardly had four people going after that and some things related to COVID, but the year after the sandpaper, a lot of people didn't want to come and watch cricket because they said, this is not the Australian team that represents them as people. So people took so seriously. So cricket Australia had to do something and that's where the punishment for both Smith and Warner and then Bancroft was harsh, harsher than what the ICC rule book suggested, because it was almost like, you know, it was the, the, I wouldn't say mob, but it's the, the pent-up emotion of uh, the Australian psyche and how they felt as people. And Cricket Australia didn't want to be isolated in a, in a competitive sporting landscape because they didn't want someone to tap them on the shoulder or wrap them on the knuckles and say, fix your problem. They, they had to do it. So sandpaper was very big and people felt um, cheated. People felt uh, the Australian team had stopped representing them as a team people wanted to, didn't want to go to the grounds, and people didn't want to accept Smith as the captain again. Uh, they wanted to stop their uh, kids from playing cricket, so there was an impact. but even now, like I mean I don't think people mind someone saying something as long as it's not personal or abusive. Uh, I think that's in the Australian direct talking culture, as I said, there's a bit of humor. maybe I think that's a point it's sometimes, as uh, uh, Shane wonn uh, famously infamously said to Arjuna Ranatunga, Um, you don't understand our culture and one kind I mean Ranatunga came up with a very clever retort but sometimes the Australian culture as a society uh, how they think is not that well understood by people outside maybe England in England they understand because they kind of understand even in England they make a little bit of uh, uh, you know funny thing about the Australian love for the baggy green and so forth but yeah it's kind of a unique country in that perspective Um, again it's a small country in terms of importance of population uh, but does really well in sports, so it's a very proud nation when it comes to sporting achievements. Uh, sometimes, you know, the the definition of culture and success sometimes goes to the head, and uh, when a thing like the Newlands uh, happens and everything is brought down, uh, that's a summary, Sakim I'm not too sure that I've uh, given. No, an I answer, think it's, 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 a, it's a great
0: answer. No, it's a great answer, and it kind of again uh, gives me a lot of different angles to you know process this because you know we don't live there, and you kind of. Uh, you read the local newspapers, see the local news. We only get, uh, of course, we get a big coverage of this uh, in the cricket uh, channels and the cricket uh, networks. But this was a pretty interesting. So let, let's talk about Steve Smith. You know, I talked to Malcolm Knox last year about him, and he said Steve Smith is huge, uh, despite you know uh, the allegation, uh, despite the not allegation, despite the gate punishment. But uh, the, some of the aura is lost uh, in terms of yesteryear Australian stars. So, one, uh, you know, I want to get your opinion. Uh, will he appear in your all-time Australian eleven? Uh, secondly, uh, you know, what he's put on for numbers, you think is sustainable or you do you see a chink in the armour? I mean, how do you say his, see his greatness? And then we can, uh, you know, talk more about forgiveness and, you know, like the uproar about the captaincy. But, you know, what is Steve Smith's uh, ascent and, you know, the current journey, you know, has been through the Vijayaraman lens. How do you see his greatness, and where does he go from here?
1: If we look at through, uh, if I if I had to look at Steve Smith as a captain, right? So he's never going to be an Ian Chapel or a Richie Benno, or we don't want, we don't want to go back further in time, um, or or even an Alan Border or Mark Taylor or Steve War. Right? Um, I don't think he'll have that kind of a um, place in the hearts of the Australians. See what Alan Border went through. Right as a captain. He might not have been the the most tactically uh, you know astute captain, but he led from the front and when Australia were going through shit like uh, pardon my French, you know, very difficult phase. Um, you know, how people felt, you know, how he was carrying the load, and you know, it's almost like, you know, has Alan Border got out. People wouldn't even ask a score, is Alan Border still batting? Is that kind of a psyche, right? And Ian Chapel brought in a you know a, a completely different a kind of a mindset to, to Australia. And the way you know Dennis Lee and others played under him, and then of course Mark Taylor and um, Steve Waugh had two great generations of cricketers. Uh, it's going to be very hard for Steve Smith to match those illustrious, so those famous, um, um, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, predecessors in terms of being a captain. Uh, it's not the success; it's it's the perception that's not going to change a lot. Of course, he'll be accepted. He is accepted by a lot of people as a great player and a great captain, but. I can't see how he'll be put on a pedestal in terms of, uh, as I said, the second most important job after the prime minister. I can't see him fitting, in, fitting him in. I don't think they'll ever make him a, a permanent captain. That's my view. As a batsman batter, wonderful player. I, I, again, I watched probably a lot of Steve Smith innings uh, on the ground. Um, I was there for his uh, that famous uh, Test match 100. He scored against England. 13-14, and again, he scored against India, 14-15. I scored against India um, uh, last summer. I watched a lot of his good one-day innings as well, like the 100 against uh, India in the World Cup semi-final, and the two couple of 62-ball 100. So I've watched Steve Smith, a lot of Steve Smith runs. Um, I enjoy watching him bat. Um, uh, he's not your, uh, I wouldn't say he's the most attractive or the most flamboyant player, but a very effective player. Uh, once you start to understand his dynamics, having watched a lot of a lot of him on TV, uh, you know how it, how he makes it work and uh, how he makes the game very simple, despite having all those complex movements and idiosyncrasies, etc. Um, in terms of an all-time eleven, um, I think uh, I think I did an all-time eleven on Twitter in twenty twenty. Maybe I sometimes tag it uh, uh, around uh, for other posts, but. Um, no, not yet. I mean, I still, my number three would be Don Bradman and Greg Chappell and um, uh, Neil Harvey and uh, yeah, Keith Miller and then openers are um, Arthur Morris and um, <clears throat> um, Victor Trumper. So I still don't have a, a place for Steve Smith. But again, it's very unfair to select a person um, in an all-time 11 till they finish their career, right? So it's not about whether he averages 64 or 62, whatever right now. Um, one thing I could see that ever since the 211 was it 211 he scored at Old Trafford in 2019, right? So he had the Lord's uh, uh, concussion, then he missed out at the Headingley ground, uh, Test match, uh, then he came back. I thought his adrenaline carried him through that 211. He looked, you know, fantastically well. But I thought somehow ever since that innings, he's not the same player as he was. Um, uh, so somehow. He's kind of lost a little bit of his mojo. He looked all right. I mean, you know, last week uh, when I was at Adelaide Oval, he played at, uh, quite a good innings, right? He he looked all right. He, he he it looked like you know he was getting the game back. But somehow, um, I mean, that 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 makes me think I'm a little bit worried about his. Uh, he might have a little bit of a decline, but given his average, he might still end up with a high fifties average or a mid fifties average. So. He will always be considered as a, a great great player, but unfortunately, he has also he's also missed out on a couple of years of good cricket. Right? A the punishment, B the still in schedule hasn't helped him. Right? Because due to COVID, Australia didn't travel to uh, you know they they scrapped a couple of tours, which means he's missed out on uh, away Test matches. Um, so, and again, given his age, um, is he going to end up with the maximum number of hundreds or maximum number of runs? Not too sure. Right? Uh, the time is not on his side. But can he maintain that uh, brilliant average and continue to produce uh, you know big scores and uh, match winning innings? That remains to be seen. I think in my you asked me I don't have a, a crystal ball to gaze and tell you his average is a little bit unsustainable, especially when people start to work him out and he could he could end up being in the fifties, which is still a very very good average. Um, but I still haven't included him in my all time eleven for Australia. But at the end of the career when he finishes off who knows right Uh, we all we're all here to change our views and opinions based on newly available evidence and data happy to change my views of course but my all-time 11 shouldn't matter anything to anyone because I'm not an expert I'm just a uh, fan yeah yeah,
0: still I mean you're a knowledgeable fan and you know you bring in a lot of uh, listeners here and a lot of people care so why isn't Ricky Ponting in there I didn't hear that name either
1: yeah but Ricky Ponting has to be Don Bradman so (laughs) <laughs> there you go. Look, I didn't want to. I mean, you can bat Ricky him po- at six. <laughs> well, again, he's competing against a Keith Miller, right? So that's a problem, right? Ricky Ponning misses out, Alan Border misses out. Um, so that's a problem with an Australian all-time eleven, right? Um it's very hard to pick the quicks. It's I mean, I don't have usually Adam Gilchrist on my Australian all-time eleven. I always go for the the pure keeper Don Talon. <clears throat> Uh, So, I mean, again, that's very controversial because 99.99% of the people will pick Adam Gilchrist. I've got nothing against that. Uh, But uh, in my, my argument is you have Don Bradman and five other batsmen playing at the top. You don't need Gilchrist runs at number seven because these six would get the job done for you. And you need the best keeper to hold on to every chance that's usually created by Shane Warne. Uh, D.K. Lilly, Glenn McGraw and uh, <coughs> Ray Lindwall, and of course Keith Miller. That's okay. that's the way I look at it. But again, um, I could be a little bit of a contrarian on that.
0: No, my knowledge is not even close to yours. So I was just throwing in names that I knew. But yeah, I'm sure you have good reasons for those stellar names not to appear. And that's a conversation for another day, since uh, we both are Indian origin. Uh, you know, uh, living in Australia and U.S. respectively. And the biggest chunk of the listeners of this podcast are Indian. So we have to bring some Indian questions down. Uh, Generic questions, you know, uh, you don't need prep for this. So Greg Chappell last year, I think, complimented in his own way, saying Virat Kohli is the most Australian in attitude from India or something. And a lot of people didn't like that, even though he was trying to compliment him. But, you know, that was a typical out of line or maybe out of era, uh, you know, compliment where, you know, it didn't sit well with people and rightfully so in some 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 cases. So from that lens with Kohli to Tendulkar, I'll even throw Dravid in there who has at least seemed enjoy a lot of respect from Australian players. Uh, who are the players besides these guys or even if you want to focus on these guys, how are they received in the Australian public imagination? You know, have they changed the way India has received in the last, say, decade and a half in world cricket? So Australia was always the toughest tour. Now India has won there twice. So, sorry, I'm butchering the question, but, you know, ranked uh, Tendulkar, Dravid Kohli through what you've heard or seen in the Australian uh, public, Australian newscasters, your friends, how do they see these three guys?
1: Uh, I would say, I mean, to your point about Greg Chappell's comparison to um, uh, Virat Kohli as our type of player, Ian Chappell made that statement uh, way back about Sachin Tendulkar, right, especially his batting style, right, Um, the way he played those uh, you know, though he was a risky player, but he used a, a fair bit of the strong forearm to play those drives, and uh, um, you know, he was a good player of the the cut and the, especially the pull and the hook. Um, not a lot of hook, but more of pull, especially when he's young. So Ian Chapel felt like you know Sachin Tendulkar is a little bit more of a R type of player than a subcontinental player, despite n- not losing any of his subcontinental things. So so these comparisons have always been there, especially uh, the experts like Greg Chappell and Ian Chapel. And that's a compliment, but uh, I, I still remember Ian Chappell wrote, um, I think 98, he used to write for the midday, and he called Sachin Tendulkar a bastard. And then he wrote within parenthesis, in Australian English, bastard is a, a complimentary term, unlike the British bastard, which is a completely you know, abusive term. So, uh, well, the praise for champions have always been there, but I think Sachin Tendulkar's impact was massive because, um, I was there for the 2011-12, uh, uh, his last tour, right? I was there for the first four days. Yes, I pretty much watched him bat in the first innings for 41. Um, I would say Virat Kohli made a 23. I th- I thought that was his best innings um, because till then he was kind of a, a an okay player. I thought he left the ball very well. And then, of course, he scored that 100 at the Adelaide Oval before that good innings at the WACA. Anyway, so I watched... Uh, a couple of Tendulkar's innings um, at the SCG, the 41, then he scored 80, right? The reception that he got, I had watched those receptions on TV in 2007, eight, then even the reception he got at the MCG in 11, 12, but to be there at the SCG, he batted on day one, day three and day four, right? Every time he comes and goes, uh, I mean, some of the, you know, open comments about, you know, thank you, Sachin kind of stuff. So, it was, I was not on the member set, so members at least you would say that the most knowledgeable and uh, you know the patrons of the game, but even in the common stands, uh, the genuine warmth for such Tendulkar as a great player and the recognition was unbelievable, right? So that was that was that's a, a great sight to watch. Now, Virat Kohli doesn't get the same appreciation from the common masses because, or at least in 2018 19, he didn't get it because. He was seen as that kind of a little bit of a brash kind of a player, um, and he was. Um, I mean, uh, you know, the famous Australian chant, which used to happen for Richard Hadley, was um, "Hadley's a wanker," right? And then you know, a few other players were called. I mean, Australians would say that you know we call someone a wanker, uh, that means it's out of respect. But the word "wanker" has got a negative connotation in simple English translation. So, Coley was. You know they they sang that song. Kohli is a wanker uh, at the SCG. I was there in eleven twelve. They sang it again in fourteen fifteen. So they would never ever sing Tendulkar as a wanker at a at ACG, But they sang it for Kohli. So so I would say Tendulkar was admired, respected, uh, almost you know as a, as a hero. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I think there's a huge amount of respect for Virat. Um, But I don't think Virat had the adulation that Tendulkar had from the Australian fans um, in terms of, you know, praise being open. But you talk to the former players, the current players, uh, people on the ground. I think the perception of Virat had changed by the time he was here in 2020, 2021. By then, he had become a little bit mellowed down. He had become a bit of a a statesman. And uh, what he did to Steve Smith uh, in England. uh, Was it at the Oval? Yeah, at the Oval, right? When India played Australia. Um, he asked the Indian fans not to boo him so I think Virat Kohli I mean his evolution as a human being and you know how he's evolved and the perception of him but I think the big thing was uh, Fox Cricket um, which is the broad host broadcast so they just made Virat Kohli the central image about how he you know the whole series was built up around him uh, he, he had those exclusive interviews and stuff so um, so he has got his own importance in terms of how the media has kind of built him up as a captain and player. But I would say the universal love and affection was more for Tendulkar. Uh, for Virat Kohli, it's a little bit of a grudging respect. But you asked me, honestly, if I had to wear my Indian hat, I'd rather be a Virat Kohli than a Sachin Tendulkar, though I'm a very big Sachin Tendulkar fan because I would rather, I think in sport, yeah, it's great to be loved and affected. I mean, being affectionate, but I would rather be grudgingly, grudgingly accepted, respected, and, you know, loved and, you know, adulated. That's my personal view. So may I intervene Sorry. So
0: I, I want to intervene here because then we can talk about Dravid. But uh, I think it's also fair. I think uh, I'm adding a question, which I usually don't do, sorry. But uh, is it also the case Virat Kohli hasn't had a swan song? So maybe uh, when the time comes, he's playing his last time in Australia, maybe he'll get the same adulation. His road has been very different than Tendulkar because he's more like an in-your-face guy who made Australians a little uncomfortable. They call him, you know, someone who's like their own, but, you know, in a lot of terms and you know character and traits so maybe that's where uh you know the roadmap is different Tendulkar and Dravid were always seen as these you know likable guys but Kohli was more feisty but I think the respect level is similar that's my observation so yeah factor that in your answer
1: no Raul Dravid was never in the picture I think I I think it's very unfair to club Raul Dravid with this three I think he was not I mean, A, I know he scored well in 2003, but overall his record in Australia has been poor. Otherwise, except you take that added over, you know, 223 and uh, 72 not out. Um, well, I mean, that was, you could say that the, the, the best Australian bowlers weren't there. So I wouldn't say Raul Dravid was ever in that category of Tendulkar and Kohli, right? Maybe others thought, same thing. I mean, Lakshman scored a lot of runs, but again, it was a different class. So Tendulkar and Kohli are real, real superstars, big players. Uh, Dravid was never in that kind of... I mean, of course, I respect people who know the cricket, but Raul Dravid is never that, uh, you know, face that they could recognize kind of thing. He wasn't that kind of player. Now, coming back to that's a great point you're raising because uh, how Tendulkar was here. But, but I could see that, right? Even Tendulkar, when he came in 99 2000, right after eight years, after this initial debut, he was hugely respected, right? He was... he. I mean, people wanted him to do well. People he open, openly said... You would rather watch Tendulka get a good 50 and get out and Australia win. And they used to say the same thing about Lara. I don't think Virat Kohli has ever had that kind of, as I said, right, in know, affectionate, you know, he's an opponent, but let's watch him bat for a while, right? He was always like, you know, let's get him out. Um, they use the word flog, F-L-O-G, which is a little bit like the banker. Um, it's a lot of social media comments and all, you know, Kohli is a flog kind of a thing. Um as been used by a lot of Australian player, I mean fans. I've never seen that being used against, say, someone like Tendulkar or someone like that. So to answer your question, yes, it's a very valid point, but I'm not too sure that will change because if Virat uh, travels every two years. Maybe he'll come back in two years' time. Um, that's a great question. Maybe who knows? You never know, right? If if by then, if Virat Kohli was not the uh, Indian Test captain due to all the shenanigans that's happening in the BCCI. Who knows if he comes here as a as an individual player, not as a captain? You never know. People might uh, start to get a little more warm. I mean, you know, they may warm up to him. I don't know. I mean, I'm not able to speculate. But this is a great point you're making, Sake.
0: No, I think it's only coming from the discussions you know, or the cricket universe has had, and bcc 's role has really become you know the you know the head of the table. And in Tendulkar's year, that was you know the beginning of it. But now it's the clear. Uh, alpha or the clear leader in the finances of cricket and leadership of cricket. So I think Virat Kohli also represents, I mean, I don't want to say the new India because that's kind of a cliche what he's been saying but Virat Kohli also, also, you know, plays his cricket and wears his emotions differently than Tendulkar or Dravid. So Dravid, again, um, sorry, before that,
1: before Dravid, I mean, I want to say two things, I forgot to tell, right? Two things really warmed the cockles of the hearts of the Australians was Virat Kohli went to the Phil Hughes uh, funeral uh, in 2014 uh, 15 right he went to the you uh, know north new south, south wales uh, town where uh, they had the funeral right? he went and then tendulkar came here sachin tendulkar came here uh, for the bushfire game right that was a hugely popular moment it was on tv tv and everything so to me these two moments right the fact that virat kohli went but back in 14 15 he wasn't that kind of a pantomime villain he was a it's a, it's a very good player um, uh, and the fact that tendulkar uh, came here for that um, for that uh, bushfire appeal, though he was not fully fit to bat. I think those were the things that were very popular with the Australian fans. I just, I thought we would add that. Sorry, go ahead with your Raul Dravid question.
0: No, 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 exactly. No, uh, it was a first serve fault. Like if you talk tennis, I, I shouldn't have included Dravid because, but my question was slightly wider. At least I was trying to ask, of course, Tendulkar and Kohli are superstars and Dravid is like, you know, a distant third, not even in the same sentence, you're right. But in terms of importance from the cricket fraternity, you know, like the stuff like Bradman oration and how Australian media and former players have warmed up to Dravid. That's where I was coming from. Popularity-wise, he's a distant third. No no denying that. Even Rohit Sharma may, you know, uh, combine you know his popularity or counter his popularity. But the respect Dravid has had, that's why I club him uh, as one of the three most important Indian batsmen to tour Australia. And we all know he didn't score against Makra and... Uh, won in that, you know, 2003 series because they both were not available. Uh, But I think I just want to get your views on how Dravid is received in the Australian cricket circles. You know, the former players of media, the Bradman oration, a lot of Dravid fans, you know, uh, including myself used to think that's a distinction. How do you see that?
1: I think the Bradman oration, to be perfectly honest, I know it's more for the cricketing aficionados or the, you know, real tragics, I would say. Um, I don't think I've been here for you know, 13 summers now. I don't think Bradman Oration gets that kind of, uh, you know, coverage. And, you know, of course, people like us, you and me, you know, people are doing cricket podcasts and stuff. We will read every line of it. We still talk about uh, the famous Kumar Sangakara, uh, MCC, um, you know, Colin Carter speech, et cetera, et cetera. I think the Bradman or, I mean, people re- know that Raul Dravid is a very uh, intelligent smart, articulate, uh, well-thought-out person, um, you know, very smart person. And that's why he was given that than anybody else. So, of course, as you rightly said, in the cricketing circles, there's a lot of respect for someone like Raul Dravid as a former player, what he did to the game, et cetera. Um, I think, so I'm not able to say whether Brad, I mean, if you really ask me, I would say Sunil Gavaskar um, had some sort of, I mean, I wasn't here and it was in the previous eras. I think Sunil Gavaskar would have received a lot more respect as well because he did three tours, right? So 77, and he was even here for the 71-72 World Series. So I think Sunil Gavaskar would have had a bigger say as well in terms of, you know, know, popularity. But Rahul Dravid, as I said, people would respect him as a a consummate professional. Um, But the only difference is, uh, is he the guy who's going to be recognized by people on the streets versus, you know... Do they, do they promote a series based on him? I think that kind of an aura is something that only Virat Kohli and Sachin Tendulkar had in recent times. Um, and again, Kohli being a, a, an aggressive captain that helps. Yeah, you're right. From an intellectual... I mean, maybe SC, I mean, Tendulkar has been made a, an honorary SCG, given an SCG membership. Will they give something like that to Raul Dravid? Maybe, yes. But I don't think he's got a test standard over here. So maybe that's some that goes against him. But maybe if there is a future lecture on uh, on, on. maybe for the SCG members or some of those things, they'll probably invite Rahul. So Raul Dravid will still get that respect amongst the elite of cricketing circles or the intelligentsia of the Australian cricketing um, circles. Um, so he will be right up there. But from a common man, a common woman perspective, the other two would uh, score over them. I think that's the way I would like to summarize, Sakip.
0: No, that, that totally makes sense because, you know, David is, you know, a star of the game, but, you know, compared to these two guys, you know, he's definitely not the main attraction and even he knows that and, you know, and that's totally fine. And, uh, another name that has appeared a lot in my podcast is Jiteshwar Pujara. You've seen him score a hundred in Sydney, I think a couple of years ago when he was having that hell of a series, uh, what, again as a, to- as a as a fan of the sport and you've seen the fortune of indian cricket you know going back to the 80s uh, how well do you see his contribution in the last two australian tours i know it's a random question you allowed me to ask anything and uh, we'll wrap the show up in you know maybe a couple more questions so how do you value Chita- chiteshwar pujara's role in australia and, uh, and we never talk about it. So do you think strike rate has a place in cricket what what is your view on overall the the pro pujara and the pujara cons that have always you know, occupy the Twitter debate, uh, you know, summarize from what you have seen, uh, at least the two tours of Australia he's made in the last three years.
1: I think Cheteshit Pujar's contribution in 2018 19 was more pronounced because uh, the Australian side and worked him out and uh, he scored quite brilliantly. I think I was there for day one when he scored that 193. Um, so, yeah, and uh, there was a, I mean, I remember uh, Gerard, uh, Gerard Watley yeah. Um, he used to do those shows on Fox Cricket, at uh, Whiteley, rather sorry. Um, so he he used to even ask uh, experts why are uh, batsmen uh, not playing like Suresh Pujara, right? So that kind of uh, so uh, so the, you know those kind of questions um, uh, on TV after the game, right? Uh, on both radio and. Uh, TV that was asked was pretty uh, prominent so he was you know, during that summer when uh, India was touring in 1819 he was seen as the most important player and he had a stellar series I would say for the return series a couple of years ago the Australians had kind of figured out the way to bowl to him the kind of you know bowl a slightly different line and uh, um what do we say? They kind of denied him the scoring opportunities and he still played well. I mean, his innings both at the Gabba and the SCG were very crucial, right? In terms of blunting the Australian attack for the lower order in a ba- you know, batters to come and play the shots, especially Rishabh Pant. Uh, now, if I look at Chitesh Pujara as a test match batsman, I mean, he's got a big role to play. Um, whether he's a better, old, you know, an inferior owl driver or a better owl driver, that's a completely different debate. But he he has got a role to play. Now, the question is, you can't have five Cheteshit Pujaras in a team and hope to become a dominant team. So it's all about the combination about someone like him being an anchor. And then, you know, if he's surrounded by a good stroke-making players who could get on with the game, then it makes it a lot easier. Uh, but then again, at the same time, uh, Cheteshit Pujara, when he's in good form, he gets good singles. And if he rotates the strikes and allows the the stroke-makers to get a maximum strike, that also plays a part. But again, against difficult attacks on, you know, slightly tricky surfaces, how he blunts the attack. So his, his role is crucial. Um, pro Chitesh Pujara, anti P- Chitesh Pujara, it depends, right? So in some games, strike rate matters, right? If you're batting first on a flat wicket, right? And if you're a home team or if you're a, uh, you know, on a surface where time is important, you need to score runs quickly so that you can get 20 wickets. It's going to be harder. Yes, you would expect uh, the set batsman to play the shots, you're not you're, you're expected to get your 50, and from 50 to 100 you need to score quicker, and 100 to 150, right? So that's a given. But on trickier surfaces, sometimes on a you know third day surface or a, a fourth inning surface, it becomes harder, right? Either the variable bounds and other things. So then it's not a strike rate. Sometimes you have to back for time. Sometimes you have to you know blunt a couple of ex, you know really good spells. Before someone can, you know, play the strokes. So I think Cheteshwar Pujara fits into a lot of those roles. But sometimes, if you have to really set the pace um, on a on a shirt front of a wicket uh, where you're batting first, you're the home team, then he might not be the best person. But again, as long as he ad- adopts and plays well, I'm okay, right? I mean, if I look at overall his contribution in terms of what he's done for uh, the Indian batting in the last, you know, you know, few in a few years. It's been pretty good. Of course, at the same time, you can't rest on past laurels, right? Everyone has got time. And if you're not getting runs, if you're not scoring runs the way it is, it's different. I I know the word intent and what Virat Kohli and Ravi Shastri were talking about and and Chiteshit Pujara was asked to bat up a bit uh, quickly in terms of scoring. That's an interesting dynamic. I'm not across the details in terms of what was said, especially in the Indian, Indian dressing room, it's hard to decipher what it is. But again, there are times when you have to, you have to show intent. You need to, whatever the word, if intent is a bad word, you need to score quickly. You have to get on with the game. But there are times you need to blunt it. I mean, especially in Australia and those two uh, tours, uh, I think Chateshwat Pujara has played his role quite well. Um, and, uh, but if the criticism could be elsewhere where he might not have uh, forced the pace, that's a completely different topic.
0: Absolutely, and thank you for you know being so thoughtful. I'm just throwing in questions. So now let's stick to the script, or at least the question that I told you that I would be asking. So let's uh, let's talk about uh, Twitter. You know, we did a, a, a last episode was about you know how Twitter operates, but you are a Twitter expert. You know, like for the. For the younger generation, you and me in my uh, in our mid 40s are like middle-aged uncles. But you know, you pack a punch. You know your history. I quietly stay on the dis- on the fence because I don't know as much as uh, you or some of the other guys who operate with history, with understanding the game. So I know you've been on cricket forums all your life. You kind of know how the internet works, and our Twitter is like the very fierce marketplace where you get challenged by the minute. So what is what is your operative model here? I mean, uh, I know you are someone who's not uh, shying away from debates, but you take them seriously. You're not going to make a fool of yourself. You back your arguments. And uh, there are times when you walk away and learn from someone, you know, tip your head and say, okay, I learned something. So how does that uh, occupy your ecosystem? You're a very regular member of Twitter. And what's the... What's uh, I mean, Twitter advice you give to like you know middle-aged people? I mean, we are still young, but uh, on Twitter we are middle-aged. What 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 is the our generation can do better to operate with this uh, data-filled young Twitter? You know, cricket fans who watch the game differently, who speak a different language. So floor is yours. It's a wide question, but I'm sure you can you can hit this out of the park as well. No,
1: I mean before that, I think probably I got the name wrong. I think in Cheteshwar Pujar, I don't know how I pronounce his, how I said his last name is. Gerard Waitley, uh, the ABC, SCN, um, and he was on uh, Fox Cricket as well. So probably, I don't know, probably I got his name jumbled up just letting you know. Now, coming back to Twitter, I'm no expert. Uh, I'm no expert on Twitter, but uh, to answer your question, um, I think one advantage I had over quite a few people is like, I've been online uh, on cricket message boards, BBC TMS, uh, then Park Creek Bus and Cricket Forum, I met some of these people even on Twitter way back 15 years ago. So I've been there or thereabouts uh, from 2004, three, whatever, right? So, um, so I've kind of learned a fair bit in terms of how it works, uh, the ability to um, uh, interact with people from different sporting cultures, different uh, ethnicities, nationalities, and sporting wars. And I've seen a lot of these indoor park wars uh, playing out in 2003, four five in other places, other times rather. Um, I think one thing I've learned, you know, a lot of people don't have a, an identity. Sometimes they have an anonymous handle. Sometimes they could be a bot. So one one thing I, my point is, there's no name calling. Um, you know, As you rightly said, if you're putting a, an opinion out, be ready to be challenged. So one thing that I've learned, because sometimes we all have this preconceived notions thinking, if you're talking to a family member for cricket or on a WhatsApp group, even there, it can get a little ugly, right? Or with a set of friends, you kind of know what you're talking about and uh, what sort of repost or what sort of uh, response you're going to get. But when you go online, um, my simple mantra is, be ready to be challenged for every word you say. Somebody is out there going to challenge you, throw you a curveball, and put you in the spot and ask you a question. Now, I think a lot of times what people mistake is or take it for granted is, oh, I got twenty years of cricket watching experience, or oh, played cricket at a level below Shield, or a level below Ranji, or a level below whatever the domestic tournament. Therefore, um, my opinion should be counted. I mean, that doesn't work that well on Twitter, or on message boards. Right? One has to earn respect, build a profile. And, you know, become credible in terms of what they're saying. I think once you become credible, once you become um, reasonably accepted, uh, you will be accepted after a while. Then even when you say something diametrically opposite to somebody else's belief or uh, thing, I think people will accept you as you are. I think one of the advantages I had, like, it's not cricket, right? I had the fortune of being part of a Pakistani cricket forum, just called a Pakistani cricket forum. We used to discuss everything, politics, war and whatever, right? so i was i was an absolute minority i think there were like four or five of us uh, from india i was in the us back then and probably 95% of the people are from pakistan now to me discuss politics partition wars uh, you know indo pak uh, cricket rivalry it kind of gave me a, a different perspective that kind of there is a huge lesson learned for me because the ability to understand a different point of view assimilate it be challenged for everything right uh, especially given the indo park relationship, like, you know, and I come, I may come from a different religious angle. They may come from a different religious angle. Um, so all those things such as to be ready to be challenged. And that kind of opened my uh, mind up. And that allowed me to <laughs> accept a lot of um, divergent viewpoints. I think that is a, a good, good lesson I learned. I think that has, that has stood, I mean, that has helped me to become a better person when it comes to, uh discussing things online it kind of un, you know allows you to you know how to engage with someone without being rude or offensive throw the data points don't attack the messenger but attack the message you know how do you how do you be positive at the same time you know put out your points so i've learned some of these things again as i said some of these rules Sakib, it's easy to talk uh, on a podcast but when you write it's all about how you control your emotion It sometimes we type from type up from a phone you might be on the train um, rushing somewhere and you're typing up and uh, you don't check it, right? You don't, you don't have time to reread. So sometimes some of these messages, when you type up, you think you've typed up something, but, and then there are character limits, right? So it comes out as something else. So, and you can't put emojis. You can't, people sometimes don't get the sense of humor, sense of humor varies from culture to culture. So to answer a point, I think my two cents to anyone who wants to have a reasonable Twitter following or, or Twitter interactions on cricket or any topic, be respectful. Um, Never ever abuse, especially women, right? Sometimes people somehow, a lot of men think that, especially cricket or football, what do the women know about the LBW rule or the offside rule? So we can't do this mansplaining or condescension, you know, engage with everyone. Um, There are a lot of young people out there, right? (laughs) Late teens and early twenties, they know a lot more, right? They're the way of their way of, analyzing their way of doing videos, their way of interacting. It might not be uh, similar to what you do, but there is a role for everyone. So as long as we accept that we, have a, we need to have a bigot tent for different viewpoints, I think we can coexist. And as you said, I try not to shoot from my hips. If, you, if I don't know on some, some topic, I will not talk about it. I'll do my research and come back or I'll get into a questioning mode. If somebody is talking about something which I have no clue about, rather ask questions and try to learn rather than, you know, giving my views. So these are some of the things I I, I, I do, Saqib. I'm not too sure that I've answered it uh, the way you thought I would.
0: No, I think it's a, it's a unique way to explain how your mindset and what works. And there is no right answer here. And I'll even go back to what you said uh, in the Australian culture answer a few questions back was very brilliant. Like, you know, when we see someone on TV or from far, cricket is just a microcosm of the society. So when you went there, you thought Australians are like, you know, sometimes lacking confidence at work. They're very polite. That's not what we knew of the the Pontings or the wars or, you know, the McGraths. And that's what I think happens on Twitter, even though mostly uh, if we keep Indians, you know, included in the conversation, you know, irrespective of age and, you know, where we are. uh, We think we know each other, but we don't know what the pressure points are. And you're absolutely right. You know, I'm, you know, terrible. On tweets, even the tweets when I'm promoting, sometimes there's no proofread. I just push the button and I say, oh, there should be a delete function or the edit function. So you're absolutely right. I think there's a lot going on there and uh, you need to be challenged. I think that's what I walked away because you can't just put a blanket statement. And you also said about WhatsApp group, and I'm a flat track bully. Like, I'm more like a guy who flourishes in WhatsApp groups, even though I've quit most because of my sanity. But yeah, I, I, I don't function well on Twitter because I'm my strength is I always know. Uh, or someone say I could be get intimidated, you know. That's you know one way of saying. But I know when I see knowledge, I respect it because I'm, I'm very quickly, you know, insecure in that way that okay, I didn't know this part. So and then I have learned so many, you know, like even Karthik Jairamani, who's a mutual on Twitter, and he was here. I follow his account. Sanket, you know, is a very Uh, you know, very live wire account. He knows his game and Gurkirath who's been here. So I think there are a lot of people, you know, who you can learn the sport from, but at the same time, you know, you need to, you definitely are one of them. You bring your own flair, you back, uh, you know, I think your combination of, you know, modern day game, and you still have a lot of historical references. Again, I don't think I know anyone who doesn't follow you, but if there's someone who follows me, I would say follow Vijay. He's a great follow. I don't think that's going to happen because I think most, most people who follow me know you. Before we wrap this up, I'm I'm going to ask you about the ticketing and the best venue. But there is uh, this always the growth India Australia rivalry, and Aust- India has really uh, you know embraced Australia uh, this rivalry in the Indian fan imagination as the rivalry. It surpassed the Indian Pakistan rivalry. We don't play with Pakistan anymore, but India Australia rivalry, even going back to the Tendulkar Dravid days, has become the showcase event. How does it measure in terms when we compare it to the Ashes in the minds of the Australian public and the media? Is it equal? Is it nowhere close? Is it a close second? Uh, how do you see it? By well, you know, you, you live there for thirteen years, so you definitely have a vantage point that goes a lot beyond than mine and others.
1: It's an interesting question, Saki, because um, I think the India Australia rivalry is really evolving and it's becoming more and more important. And everyone understands that, uh, despite all the Ashes uh, importance and hype in history, when India tours. Uh, Cricket Australia makes like almost three times the money that uh, they get it when England comes. So from a financial perspective, India-Australia is very important for Cricket Australia. And I think people who know the game and the way it operates, they they understand that. Now we talk about the cricketing rivalry. I'd like to go back a little bit. I think uh, we had two great uh, India-Australia series. 2001 when Steve Waugh's team uh, was stopped um, uh, at the Eden Gardens by Saro Ganguly's team and then uh, um, India won both at uh, Eden Gardens and the at the Chepok to win 2-1, the historic win from the follow-on. Then India came here, Saro Ganguly's team came here 2003-04 and it was a 1-1 a draw uh, with Raul Draud playing a big role but again um, then when Australia went back to India in 2004, um, Gilchrist was the captain. I remember Gilchrist saying in the first press conference or maybe before the Bangalore test, he said uh, perhaps this is the the biggest uh, rivalry now in world cricket, uh, the way we played in 2001 and 2003. But ironically, when they were promoting the trophy, Border gawaska trophy, Gilchrist kept on referring to as a Border gawaska trophy. Well, the BCCI had a simple thing called TVS trophy because it was the the title sponsor. So Gilchrist had to correct themselves, uh, correct the the, the organizers say it's a border Gavaskan, not a TVS trophy, but VCC didn't care two hoots. They thought it was a TVS trophy because that's a sponsor. I think even Shane won for once. Um, he sided with uh, Gilchrist and said, perhaps these, are the two, these, the two, these two teams represent the most important rivalry at the moment. He said something like that. Uh, so basically, I think, you know, I'm sure a lot of Indian fans, including myself, I was 17 years younger, right? We thought, oh, it's great that they're talking about how great uh, India-Australia cricket rivalry was. I think Ponting didn't play in the first two Test matches, and then um, uh, you know Ponting came back for the. You no, know, Ponting was Ponting was not even uh, in in um, in in Arpur, right? So he was there on the team actually. So he came out with a statement saying, it "Doesn't matter how big India-Australia rivalry grows, it'll always be ashes." Because um, he said something very clearly. Uh, every Australian father and mother wants to wants their children to beat England in cricket. You cannot lose to England in cricket. We don't have that kind of a um, uh, what do we say rivalry with India. So Ponting was pretty dismissive in saying that doesn't matter what India Australia does. It's it's the Ashes. Now I think we need to look at it from a historical perspective because the the Frank Warrell Trophy uh, Australia vs West Indies was was Australia's biggest, uh, you know, uh, what do we say? Almost like a wild goose chase. It was just literally, you know, it's almost like even Lend- Ivan Lendl and Wimbledon, right? You know, the more you chase, more it was kind of going away kind of stuff. So there was a period when West Indies were very popular. Every year, almost, they came here for the one-day series. The World Series cricket played a big role. Um, and Australia had this obsession of beating West Indies, which Alan Border unfortunately couldn't do. And then Mark Taylor accomplished it. So if you look at it, Frank Warrell trophy was very important. Australians had put in all the efforts towards it. But once they won in 95, then unfortunately the West Indies' demise happened. So the Frank Warrell was quickly forgotten. They had a great rivalry with South Africa for a while, right? When South Africans tried to dominate, but of course, Australia had their numbers. So what I'm trying to say is there are some rivalries that have challenged the Ashes from time to time. Frank Warrell, of course, a South African, uh, for some reason, like uh, cricket. In New Zealand and Australia, they don't have a great cricket rival. They've got a much better rugby rival with the New Zealand dominance. Now, India is trying to challenge that. But if you look at it from 1877 or even before that, the historical, um, you know, the whole thing, uh, nothing can come close to ashes. I think the way I would like to look at it, a lot of non-cricket fans follow the ashes. A lot of people have nothing to do with cricket. If the urn is retained, they'll send you a message saying, finally, the urn is coming home or the urn is retained. So it's the England-Australian rivalry. is just beyond cricket. It's it's an event. It's it's history. It's heritage. It's it's tradition. It's almost like I think I had tweeted about it. It's almost like somebody coming to Tamil Nadu in China in India and say, Hey, why are we not promoting Pongal, the harvest festival, around January 14th or Diwali or Diwali, whichever you want to call it, um, because they're part of the tradition they're part of your culture you don't need to promote it as an event I mean people can still promote it I think the Ashes Cricket is is almost like that which means you don't need to oversell it because everyone knows it so from that perspective media perspective there's no way um, uh, any other rivalry can uh, unseat it of course if India continues to play and wins many many series and you know becomes a dominant power with you know battery of fast bowlers and spinners like West Indies didn't have a who knows Indian cricket would get closer, but I can't see how they're ever um, closing the gap with the ashes. See the other aspect about uh, the, the, the whole, you know, how the ashes plays out, right. A lot of people say that our oh, media gives disproportionate coverage, right. Media writes what people want to read, right. Media writes what, I mean, in India, we accuse the media of being clickbait and, uh, you know, writing stuff about, you know, the wives and the girlfriends and the personal stories and the gossip and uh, all the stuff, which is a very valid criticism. But here the media is even more competitive because cricket is competing with other sports. So when ashes happens, comes to town, it's a massive event because it's one time where, you know, everything else can pale into insignificance. I'll tell you one more thing about ashes and its impact, right? Every other sport, they talk about ashes as some sort of a comparison. Um, Like for example, when they have these boat races where England, Australian yacht, uh, you know, yacht races happening or sailboatings happening, they'll say water on. I mean, ashes on water. I still remember even the BB British commentators when I think in Bloemfontein, when England and Germany played that uh, 2010 World Cup FIFA World Cup second round game. uh, I don't think it was BBC, BBC feed. We got it probably the ITV feed. I don't know which exact feed we got it in Australia. The commentators said this is the sort of the Ashes kind of a football rivalry. So even the england Germany, which is a great footballing rivalry, people equated with the Ashes. So Ashes is so much ingrained in the culture uh, and especially the way the name came, what it happened. It's a fantastic tradition. Right? It's just not going to go anytime soon. The other point is, I'll tell you an example, right? I still remember, was it 2000, maybe 12, 13, whatever. I was listening to radio driving on a Saturday it is not even a cricket season or maybe, I don't know. I don't exactly remember. They were talking about Australians have been building up Pat Cummins and, you know, um, <laughs> Pat Cummins, who, who the other bowler they talked about? Uh, Hazelwood? Not Hazelwood. Um, the one who Pat- just retired. Pattinson. Uh, Pattinson. Yeah, Pattinson. So the commentator said, Australia always were building up a team in such a way for a Lord's Test match in a few years' time you want to unleash Cummins and Pattinson at the English. So it doesn't matter what we say, always Australians think about how do you win the ashes in England? How do you, how do you retain the ashes you win at home? So this whole four year cycle of trying to win the ashes. Sometimes people think it happens only in England. Having lived there, I would say it's the same, um, what do we say, obsession about ashes over here every four years, or every two years, right? When it happens. So look, uh, you know there are people who are calling who are calling out on Twitter saying India, and New Zealand should be respected more, Pakistan, Bangladesh should be respected more. My answer is well, let's try to build the India-Pakistan if you want because that's probably the only rivalry that can definitely improve it. But again, they got a lot of catching up to do from a historical perspective. To answer your question, yes, the other rivalries, including India-Australia, can come closer, but I can't see how Ashes, even when they play a dead rubber, even when the series are not competitive. I think they will remain significant, and because it it connects with people. Is it fair to say people. is
0: it fair to say it's culture more than cricket then? Because uh, cricketing terms, the Indian side of the house can make an argument. We beat Australia twice in two back to back you know uh, away tours, and England is you know uh, not putting up a fight again. Which is you know uh, there's a broader conversation conversation to be had. Yeah, well, but well the same. That doesn't diminish the culture uh, attached to Ashes, I guess.
1: Okay, let's ask the West Indies. They beat uh, Australia here in 79-80. 81-82 was what? uh, A 1-1 draw. They came back. They won in 84-85. They won in 88-89. They won in 92-93. So they won, what? Four series in a row? Uh, But still Ashes was more important. So what what do we say about it, right? So Indians won twice. West Indies won so many times, right? So my point is, it's like anything, as I told you, right? Um, yes. You talk purely from a cricket quality perspective. Yeah. Uh, you would say that currently when India and Australia play in India, it's more competitive. It's more compelling to watch. But I think Kevin Peterson said the right thing because we don't hate the Indians like we do the Australians. So there's no way we can go beyond a point and enjoy the wins and you know feel more sore about the feet. So I think from a player's hurting perspective, from the fans feeling it, because the ashes has that extra bit of an element, right? doesn't matter what we say. India, New Zealand, I'm sorry to say it. It doesn't matter how much you put spin on it. Currently they are one and two, whatever. Right? There's no history between India and New Zealand by any standards. So you need, we need to build. I'll put a simple question. I'll put a question back, right? 2001, Eden Gardens was the greatest theater. When I mean, we watched the brilliant test match being enacted between India and Australia, right? Follow on and, uh, you know, the big rahul sorry, vvs lakshman rahul partnership, Harvijan taking 13 wickets, blah, blah, blah. Australians have toured India five times after that. Five times. They, they are yet to play a test match at the Eden Garden since 2001. Whose fault is that? Do you blame England? Do you blame Australia? Can you believe England not playing a test match for 20 years at the Headingley after 1981 when Australia tours? Or, you know, 2019 Headingley? So this is how you build narratives and you know legends, right? You play at a ground. Imagine Aust- I mean, a generation of Australian cricketers have lost the aura of playing at the Eden Gardens. You know, imagine the ghosts of you know Eden Gardens, you know, literally being there. So BCCI didn't do it. You could call it rotation. You could say India has got more grounds, but you don't build tradition. You don't build the fan base. You don't uh, you know do these kind of things which which resonate four years, eight years, sixteen years later unless you build a tradition. To me, poor chronicling, not having the historical significance and not building a fan base towards a certain rivalry. I think, yeah, it's easy to say Indian fans can ask a question, we're playing competitive cricket, but why Ashes matters more to the people of England and Australia? I think more than worrying about it, people of India should be thinking, about how do we make our rivalry with uh, whether it's Australia, England, uh, Sri Lanka, or even Pakistan? I should say, Pakistan or even Sri Lanka, more relevant and more you know, repetitive. You don't pull out of a test match like India did at Old Trafford, right? The India-England series is doing great. Of course, somebody would say it's COVID. But everyone knows you pull out of a test match for, a, for an IPL. IPL is very important for the financial well-being. You do that, then you expect the India-England rivalry to be the biggest. I'm sorry, it doesn't work like that. That's my unfortunate uh, view on that, circuit.
0: So let's wrap this up as a fan experience, you know, with your 12 or 13-year attendance at the SCG and many World Cup games and also been to Eddie Oval. uh, What is the best venue for an international visitor to plan, come watch a test match? And uh, give some tips, you know, how SCG is, uh, you know, how far is from the airport? How, I know all these things could be done on Google, but when people are listening, what is a traveler or fan's guide? You know, how, how, how well do you know your SCG travel and just endorse it in a way that, you know, if someone is making a trip, you know, they can take, you know, from accommodation to commute, you know, uh, it's in Sydney, so I'm sure it's surrounded by great restaurants. Uh, what's the best way to get tickets? Are they like limited tickets or you have to be a member or, you know, and what sites to avoid? So yeah, it's all yours. Just to give a checklist.
1: I'm not too sure whether uh, Tourism Australia is going to pay me anything for this as an incentive for saying what I'm going to say. Uh, look, jokes apart, um, look um, again depends, right? So for some reason, right or wrong, Sydney gets the maximum. You know, Australian image is somehow uh, built up by Sydney, right? The 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 Opera House, the Harbour Bridge, and beaches. It right? somehow people associate Australia with Sydney. It's almost synonymous. Of course, Melbourne is a great city. You know, Other places are there, some smaller towns and beaches and all. So I think any, if everyone, anyone wants to come to Australia, Sydney is a great place to visit, a um, uh, great summer. And again, if someone wants to come, they wouldn't like to just come for cricket. Right? They would like to explore a country a little bit outside of cricket as well. So uh, SCG is a great venue to come. Um, but, you know, if you really look at it from uh, the occasion, the boxing day in Melbourne is arguably the biggest sporting day in the Australian calendar rather than the AFL Grand Final. Uh, but again, um, so Melbourne is is another one. Um, I've been to the Adelaide Oval. Uh, I would highly, highly recommend Adelaide Oval. The only problem with Adelaide is it may not be the easiest place to connect uh, from overseas. Like if you're flying from the US or from Europe or India, you don't get too many... Uh, direct flights to Adelaide and accommodation may not be as big as uh, you may not get as many options, like say in Sydney or Melbourne, the two biggest cities, as I said, 40% of the the population lives over here. Uh, But good thing about Australian cities, most of the cities have good public transport, pretty much all the airports um, will have, uh, besides the typical cabs and Uber, uh, they'll have, uh, let's say, uh, train services uh, to connect to the uh, centre of the city, um which means um you know even if you don't want to spend on the cab you can still uh, get to your hotel the other word we use is cbd i think it's a bit like the downtown that they use in the u.s central business district um so grounds like melbourne mcg and adelaide are pretty much in the bank in the middle of the the city center which means easy to commute easy to shop easy to eat out and you know hotels and stuff sydney scg is slightly to the eastern side but again pretty much within the commute um and also, both. I mean, you could walk to the Adelaide Oval from the center of the city, which is great. Um, MCG is easily accessible through the tram, which is a, a good old network in Melbourne. Sydney, you could either take a bus or a you know a light rail that's there. Um, I think Gaba is one place. Look, Gaba has its own reputation as the Cauldron, Gabba tour and all. I watched one test match over there. I think Pakistan was it, like nineteen twenty. I wasn't greatly impressed. It was It's a bit of a soulless ground. I mean, it's got those colourful seats. And uh, uh, I, I mean, I'm told that when you go to a BBL Big Bash game or a, a night game, uh, it looks great. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, my experience of Gabba was it's a, it's a world-class stadium. It's got world-class facilities. But somehow I felt it was a little bit uh, below. par. I went to Manika Oval to watch the, the Sri Lanka test in uh, 1920. It was a pretty good ground, small, a pretty little ground. Um, Canberra, Canberra. Usually, it's four hours drive from Sydney. Uh, a lot of people who follow cricket, you'll know that after that uh, Andrew Simons, Harbhajan thing uh, incident at the SCG in 2007-8, the Indian team was going to Canberra to play a three-day game, but uh, they delayed the departure. Which means every day there was a speculation whether the, the the bus or the shuttle that was supposed to take the Indian team from the hotel in Sydney to Canberra would ever leave. Trust me, I've been to, I've driven from Sydney, driven from Sydney to Canberra for some reason. It doesn't matter who I go with—work colleagues, or family, or friends. Somehow I bring this topic up. So anyone who's sat next to me in a car, they've always—I've always told them about this. Happened in two thousand seven eight that the Indian team shuttle team almost travelled through this path. So it's a pretty nice drive. The city to Canberra is a pretty nice drive as well. It's closer to Melbourne as well. Uh, Perth has got a couple of new uh, stadiums, of course, the WACA and the Optus. I've never been—I've been to Perth for a lot of work trips, but I've never been to the Optus Stadium. Looks very spectacular as well. Um, and then down South Hobart uh, in Tasmania, they're hosting the Ashes Test. Uh, you know, I've never been to Tassie, but Tasmania is a very attractive uh, tourist location as well. Um, as well, So you asked me, I don't want to give pointers, but SCG is great because Sydney offers a lot more. Of course, boxing Day, in MCG, the, the cold on i MCG. If you're picking a third venue, I would say go for the Adelaide Oval because... It's a small town, uh, it's a it's a great cricket ground, it's got a, you know, especially the day-night test matches are an absolute spectacle. Those are the three choices I would personally recommend, of course, I'm maybe a little biased towards based on where I've been to, but most of the Australian cricket grounds are quite welcoming. The only thing tickets here to be uh, prepared because tickets get released on June, July timeframe for the, the test matches in January and people tend to book them out early. so especially if you're coming for an Ashes test or an india test tickets get sold out yeah please plan your bookings early um that's the only advice and similarly one-day games or you know if you're coming for a world cup t20 and other stuff uh again
0: indian expats easily fill up the grounds yeah are these grounds near a train station what's the best way to get to the stadium like if you're talking scg
1: uh, SCG is probably compared to an, uh, an MCG in Adelaide. It's a little further, but again, you can take uh, either a bus or a train, light trail reaches to the SCG. But in terms of commute, MCG is brilliant because Jollymont, which is the, the Cricket Australia headquarters next to the MCG, that's where you get dropped off from the tram, uh, cable cars kind of thing. Um, and then Adelaide, you can pretty much walk from the city center. So from an access perspective, both Adelaide and MCG may be better, but SCG is not far behind. Then but MC's... most of the grounds have, yeah, most of the grounds have some kind of public transport to connect the circuit.
0: Okay, and MCG is next next to Australian Open, right? Flinders Park or Rod Lever Arena, yes. whatever it's called.
1: Okay. They call it. Now they, they call it the. Uh, I think it's not called Flinders Park anymore. It's called, uh, it's called. What is it called now? It's called Rod Lever Arena. But I think the whole yeah. area used to be called Flinders Park. Now, I think they call it Melbourne Park. It's called Melbourne
0: Park. Melbourne Park. You're right. Yeah. I mean, I should know this. Yeah, at least in the kind of time I waste on tennis. Vijay, this was a wonderful chat. Uh, I apologize. I put you through some unprepared questions, you know, like, but you, I think batted really well. I think you get nine out of 10 for most. I would have probably got four if you asked me the reverse order. So I think, uh, yeah, uh, this was your podcast. It was fun. And I'm only not giving you the extra point is because I don't think there's perfection because next time when you come here, you'll even do better. So we'll do a solo show again, but I think uh, we've enjoyed a lot of panel shows. I thoroughly enjoyed this. I kind of know you well. So I took the liberty of putting some, you know, some spice in the questions. I hope you enjoyed this and uh, wish you a great time in the coming Sydney Test. Happy New Year and let's do more podcasts depending on your availability uh, in 2022.
1: Thank you very much, Sakeb. It's an absolute pleasure. I know it's 12.48 uh, on a Christmas night, but uh, as I said, uh, this kind of a conversation, I'm always uh, game for it. Uh, Once again, thank you very much. I know um, a lot of you viewers might be a little bit sick and tired of hearing your voice, so a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to all of you. Um, Sakib, I wish you all the very best for a great 2022. And uh, let's catch up soon.